Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Let's pray and ask for God's help and the aid of the Holy Spirit as we come under these scriptures. Heavenly Father, Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. Lord, dig us out ears this morning to hear. Oh, Lord, help us to not only hear, but also to believe and obey and respond to these phenomenal passages of Scripture this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many unbelieving Christians have a very large stock of reasons for not expecting to see many conversions. They read the history of past ages and they wonder, and sometimes, when their eyes are sufficiently clear, they look forward with some sort of hope to the repetition of these scenes in future years. But as to God working any wonders in the world now, as to the conversion of thousands now, they do not expect it. And if it were to happen, they would be surprised and beyond all measure astonished They are forever dwelling in the past or seeking to roost in the future. But as for now, now seeing God's arm made bare, now setting to work for the conversion of men, now expecting that God will win hearts unto himself, they are not brought up to this mark yet. Their common reason for expecting nothing now is this, that there are four months and then comes the harvest. They say, this is not the time. We must have patience. We must wait. This is not the man. This is not the hour. This is not the place. We must wait till under other circumstances, other men being given, we look for grander results, but we must not expect them now. There are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Truly, my brethren, one's ear has been dinned and dunned with it till one has got sick of hearing that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Patience is a virtue, but sometimes decision is a greater one. To wait long as well, but not when the harvest is ripe and ready, for then it will lie upon the ground and rot. To wait may be well, but not when men are dying. Nay, when hell is filling, when immortal souls are in jeopardy, not when the plague is raging. And we have today to stand between the living and the dead and wave the censor of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the plague may be stayed. Four months indeed. Four months. Have there not been months enough already? We have waited long. We have waited till our patience may well have exhausted itself. It was to be four months in the days of our grandfathers. It was to be four months in the days of our fathers. And now it is to be four months still. Oh, that we would learn the Savior's words and say no longer that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. But let us do as he says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. That's the beginning of a sermon preached in 1866 by Charles Spurgeon in London. 
and it was preached during the fourth of four great cholera outbreaks in London that were claiming thousands of lives. Uh, and London was suffering. So that was preached into the middle of a situation pretty similar to ours. And I think it's fascinating because I think the issue he addresses more than 150 years later is the same for us, is it not? In this season, we are tempted to put the mission of the church on hold. Four months, then comes the harvest. Like Pastor Will preached into a couple weeks ago, we're tempted to just say, let's just wait till this passes over and then we'll kind of care again. Now's not the time. Circumstances will be better in the future. So let's just wait. But as Spurgeon drives home powerfully, and I'll link the, the full text of his sermon in our newsletter this week because it's the whole thing is powerful. But as he drives home powerfully, Jesus and the scriptures would arm us with a different way of thinking. Lift up your eyes. Look on the fields, for they are white already for harvest. That's the big idea for this morning, is now is the time for mission for the church. Now is the time for mission. Now is the time to open up our mouths and share the good news of Jesus. Now is the time for us as a community to be focused on the lost and the least. That is our focus. And even beyond the scriptures and Charles Spurgeon coming out of the grave to just melt your face off. Um, this is something that the Lord has been impressing upon us and also our partnership of churches. Um, before the shelter and home went in place, we had our clergy, clergy retreat up in Green Lake, Wisconsin, where our all-parish church retreat is going to be. And our clergy retreat is when deacons and priests around the Midwest and their spouses um, get up together for a, a, a weekend and a retreat together. And um, at the retreat, we had this prayer time in the morning, which was not intended to be long, but God began to move in us and work in us as we began to pray about mission. And it happened spontaneously. And he get, began giving us this urgency and this burden. We started confessing our sins that we haven't been concerned about the lost. And something happened. And what started as this small prayer time went throughout the rest of the day and into the evening. It was a genuine movement of God in our midst. Two weeks later, all of our churches were in shelter at home. It's fascinating. We felt like almost it was like the Lord preparing us and giving us a charge before we entered into the dark ages of coronavirus. And it has remained. Prayer and mission, those things have continued to dominate our diocesan uh, conversation, our church family's conversation. But I will be the first to admit that it has been hard to implement or believe that now is the time for mission. Really? Now? It's felt like it's been easier to wear sweatpants and uh, kick your feet up than be concerned about the lost and the least. It's been easier to be afraid than to be bold. Four months, then comes the harvest. And there are three main reasons, I think, uh, that we're tempted to think that now is not the time for a harvest season for people who coming to know Jesus. Three main reasons. The first is a problem of circumstances. In essence, it's just not the right time. People aren't concerned about meeting Jesus right now. Everyone's focus is on coronavirus or rioting or race. Nobody has the capacity to process anything else. 
And also, it's just the wrong circumstances because we literally can't even meet together. We're still uh, debating and working with Edgewood about finding a good way that we can meet again. And lots of churches all around the country are still in the throes of figuring out how to do this in the middle of coronavirus. It's just not the right time. Just give it four months when we can actually do something, and then the harvest will be ripe. So that's the first problem, just the problem of circumstances. Second is the problem of zeal. In essence, we're just not that bothered. Our urgency and our energy has been given to other things like politics, financial security, self-preservation. So some of us might have great zeal and focus right now in our life, but it is not on mission. And for some of us, we might just not be bothered about anything. <laughs> Almost like COVID has provided us this perfect covering to just generally not care and just detach. So for those of us who are struggling with the problem of zeal, it's not that we don't think right now is the time to care about mission. We might just not care at all. It's not even on our radar. So that's the problem of zeal. Third, the problem of direction. The problem of direction. In other words, maybe you do feel some missional urgency, like I do care about these things. Maybe you do care, but how? How in the world can we be missional right now? We have to be socially distanced. Our screen lives are utterly clogged. It's like there's no room to do anything there. Um, so sometimes the call to you know be missional, be evangelistic, can just feel like this massive burden with a moving target and no tools to kind of execute that call or that challenge. So it's the wrong time for mission. We're not really bothered about it anyways. And if we were bothered, how in the world would we do it? We don't know how to do it. I think that's why we're tempted to say four months and then the harvest. Maybe you haven't actually said those words, four months and then the harvest. But I wonder if you identify with any of those feelings. What I want to do this morning for the rest of our time in this sermon is I want to allow the scriptures to speak into each of those three temptations. So first, the problem of circumstances, that it's just the wrong time. Turn in your bulletin or grab your Bible and turn to John 4 with me. We're going to look at this passage. So uh, we're going to go to John chapter 4, verse 35. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together really similar to that image in Amos that Kent read where the person who's like sowing and the person who's treading the grapes, they're kind of coming up on each other. It's all happening at the same time. Jesus is saying it's harvest season. It is harvest season. He's challenging his disciples. It's the right time. Get to work. In actual agriculture, we see that there's this time period between, you know, sowing seeds and reaping, unless you're me and my garden and Nothing ever comes, and you just are bad at gardening. But people who actually know how to do it, you sow it, you wait, or you sow seeds, you wait, and then you reap the harvest. In certain relationships and in certain churches in the lives of a lot of different things in God's good timing, there are absolutely seasons of waiting and seasons of reaping and all those things. 
Jesus is not saying everything in the kingdom of God is immediate. That's important. But what Jesus is saying here, and this is crucial, is that on a historical, spiritual level, the age that you and I live in, the age of the church, is the season of harvest. Your whole life is lived in harvest time. A commentator I read on this passage puts it this way. In the physical realm, there's a period of time between sowing and harvesting. But in the spiritual realm, Jesus' coming has already ushered in the end time harvest in which sowing and reaping paradoxically coincide. So that the crop of believers is now, now being gathered into God's kingdom. It's harvest time. Your entire life is harvest time, and it will always be harvest time until the Lord comes back or until you pass. There will never be a season to wait four months. There will always be disease and political crises. There will always be disease and political crises. There always have been disease and political crises. That's why I love hearing about what Christians did in past times throughout history when they dealt with disease and political crises. There were even both of those in Jesus' day. And he acknowledges them. But he also had this crazy way of reframing all situations as an opportunity to get right with God. Jesus lived his life with immense missional urgency. Have you ever heard Jesus say, I want you to follow me, but I want you to take your time. I want you to, I want you to think about it. I want you to do it when the right time for you. I know you've got a lot on right now, so like, go back. I want you to think about it. There's going to be tons of time to like sort this out. Uh, and then you come back and find me and tell me if you want to follow me yet. He doesn't usually say that. <laughs> Have you ever heard him tell his disciples, I want you to, to go preach the gospel, but I want you to kind of wait until all the, everything is perfect. And there's like the perfect opportunity when your business and your family and everything else in the world is like taken care of. So then, then you can maybe go do this. No, he never says that. It's the opposite, right? Every conversation Jesus has with somebody, he sees as critical. Every decision is critical. All time was the right time. And this happens with uh, times of, of illness and with political crises. Remember the time the friends bring their buddy who's a paralytic and they cut a hole in the roof to try to get down to Jesus because Jesus is healing everybody? It's amazing. These friends don't have any room to get in. So they literally cut a hole in the roof and lower their friend down. And Jesus loves these guys. He applauds them for their faith. But his response to them is fascinating. The first thing he says to this guy is he forgives his sins. He uses this time to call this man to get right with God, and he helps him do it. Now, he ends up healing him, as you know, but he focuses first on their standing before God. That's an example of physical illness. There's another situation that's focused on a political crisis, and Jesus does the same thing. In Luke 13, some folks come up to Jesus to tell him about this horrific case of political injustice, where Pilate, who was a Roman ruler, had slaughtered some Jews who were in the midst of offering sacrifices, which is insane. This would be like the government intentionally killing people in church. It was all over the headlines of their day. 
And so some folks come up to Jesus and they ask him for his hot take. And his response is fascinating. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Gentiles because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. And when Jesus says, I tell you, your ears should perk up. No, I tell you, Jesus says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, Jesus is saying that didn't happen to those people because they were any better or worse than you. And therefore, let that be a reminder that now is the time to get right with God. Let that lead you to repent and believe in the gospel. I don't know about you, but for me, when I read those in the face of political injustice or physical illness or disease, those responses from Jesus can almost sound insensitive. It's almost like the son of man is tone deaf. Like, you don't understand the times. Um, when Jesus says the thing to the paralytic, people literally get mad. They're offended in the room. They're like, huh, how dare you say that? But remember, the bulk of Jesus' ministry was healing people. So nobody cares about healing people and alleviating the suffering of those who are physically suffering more than Jesus. I love how it says in the thing, Jesus was preaching the gospel and healing. They go hand in hand. So it's not like he doesn't care. Also, remember, massive bulks of his teaching revolves around justice, social justice. Jesus himself entered into an unjust system, died at the hands of it, and revolutionized it. So nobody cares more about justice than Jesus. So what's the deal? Simply put, Jesus is not tone deaf. I think Jesus just understands the times better than we do. He has a deeper understanding of the times. Look at COVID. Look at America, I think Jesus would say. You're mortal. Life is a, it's a breath. The world is literally passing away. Unless you repent and believe in the gospel, you will likewise perish. The people didn't want that hot take from Jesus, but that was the one that he gave them. So now is the time. Lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. If anything, our physical frailty before disease and our utter political instability should be a reason for urgency and not patience, right? We need to get right with God. People are suffering and far from God and they need the gospel of Jesus. Some of you know Jesus and you, you've tasted of the Holy Spirit and you know his hope. You know the anchor of his word. And 2020 has been brutal. Can you imagine what it's like to suffer through 2020 without the hope of the gospel. It's harvest time. What about our second problem? The problem of zeal. If we just don't care, we're just not that bothered. And I confess to all of these three, by the way. So I'm, I'm preaching to myself as I'm preaching. Why should we be motivated right now to labor for the gospel when there's so many other things that we could be laboring for? I think the great motivation for us is that if we are not laboring to reap a harvest of the gospel, there are at least two others, reapers, who are laboring for a different kind of harvest, and they are working hard. In uh, Charles Spurgeon's sermon in 1866, he, he draws out the first one of these, and he hits the nail on the head. I'm going to quote him again. Perhaps the most solemn reflection is that whether we gather in the harvest or not, 
there is a reaper who is silently gathering it every hour. Just now it is whispered that he is sharpening his sickle. And that reaper is death. You may look upon this great city as the harvest field. And every week the bills of mortality tell us how steadily and how surely the scythe of death moves to and fro. How a lane is made through our population. And those who were once living men are taken like sheaves to the garner, taken to the graveyard and laid aside. So you might not be bothered. You might be taking a break, but suffering and death are not. And Spurgeon goes on to point out that when death is abroad, people are more open than ever to think about deep things, about spiritual things. This has always been true. Hear him talk about cholera, the effect of cholera on London's masses. I'll quote him again. Just now this cholera has come. There can be little doubt, I suppose, about it being here already in some considerable force, and it probably may be worse. The Christian cannot dread it. He has nothing to lose and everything to gain. Love that. But since it is coming, I think it ought to be a motive for active exertion. If there ever be a time when the mind is sensitive, it is when death is abroad. The Bible teaches that all people will stand before God at the final judgment. And that is why Jesus took every opportunity, every opportunity to call people to repent and believe in the gospel. And that is the ancient and present and future calling of the people of God, the church. We're ambassadors. We get to be ministers of reconciliation through whom the Bible says God is making his appeal to men to repent and believe in the gospel. We are the laborers being sent out into the harvest. That's the first reaper, literally known as the grim reaper. <laughs> the second reaper hard at work is the devil who uh, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We might not think it is the time to preach the gospel or like bug people with the truth of Jesus, but the machine of untruth and perversion and wickedness is hard at work hard at work. Like the old anecdote, if you don't disciple your, your children, somebody else will. You've ever heard that? If we're not actively speaking truth, it's not like that void, that neutral space is just going to stay empty and just wait for when, you know, we might be willing to preach the gospel again. Untruth and wickedness will rapidly fill that. Now more than ever, the Bible talks about how there are multiple gospels that are preached. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this. That's not the gospel I taught you. Multiple gospels. One of them is true. Many of them are false. We live in a time of a lot of gospels. And they cannot save. They cannot satisfy. They cannot bring healing or justice. So we have a responsibility and a calling to speak truth. We might not be bothered we might not think we can wait. We might think we can wait more four months, but death and evil are constantly, as Spurgeon says, sharpening their sides, working around the clock. The church literally has the calling and the responsibility to be salt and light, as Timothy says, the pillar and buttress of truth. And that responsibility is not just for people whose vocation it is, like me. That's for you, the church. You are a part of the church. Now, I know this sounds really intense uh, 
to talk about judgment and say that we are laboring against death and evil. I know it's like, hey, Scott, 1866 called back, you know, it wants its sermon back. Like, <laughs> we don't usually talk like this anymore. But let the fool dispute it. Who can read the Bible and say that this is not true? That we are not actively, as the church, called to labor by preaching the gospel against death and evil in all times. How can they hear unless someone preaches, as the Apostle Paul says? So let the fool dispute it. We need to repent of our lack of zeal, brothers and sisters. We don't care. That's a problem. If our theology allows us not to be bothered, then our theology has been slowly, silently domesticated until the point that we are inconsequential as the church, and that is a victory for the devil. We need to wake up. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Lift up your eyes. Come on, the fields are white for harvest. And the other passage that Joshua read, the problem is not the harvest. What's the problem? A lack of laborers. The harvest is amazing. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord to send out laborers into the harvest. This leads us to our third problem, though. If we hear that, the problem of direction, how do we do this? I find and have found this week these scriptures extremely convicting, extremely convicting. I've stayed up at night thinking about these things, but what do we do with this? How does this end up not being just an epic evangelistic guilt trip? Because I have received those before. Lord, forgive me. I've probably done that before to people. I don't want to do that right now. So what does this actually mean? How is this practical? Fortunately for us, Jesus leads by example, as he always does. And I think uh, this leads to a really practical application step. This bit in John 4, when Jesus says this thing about four months and then comes the harvest, comes right after the story of the woman at the well. That's, that's what it happens. So Jesus is, has this parable where he's with this woman at the well. If you've never read it before, I encourage you to go back and read it in John 4. His disciples come back and then he says those words. Lift up your eyes, the fields are white. And everything we need to know that leads up to Jesus saying that is kind of in this beautiful little story. And it's just a simple story about Jesus sharing the gospel with a woman and she comes to believe. And a couple things about it are really cool and I think are helpful for us. First of all, it's a risky conversation. She's a woman. They're alone in the middle of the day uh, at this well, which is pretty crazy. And she's a Samaritan woman. Uh, so she lives on the other side of the tracks from Jesus' Jewish world, if you will. So by chatting with this woman, Jesus is crossing and breaking a couple cultural boundaries and we know this is true because Jesus' disciples show back up and they all freak out. They're like, whoa, what are you doing? Uh, before he says this. It's also risky because Jesus turns the conversation towards her, towards her thirst, and towards her spiritual hunger. Um, it, have you ever been in a conversation where you're like, oh my gosh, I could totally talk about Jesus right now. You know, I could, I could turn this conversation if I wanted to. But you're like, I know that would be a risk if I did that. That would be dangerous to like say, well, have you ever thought about this or X, Y, or Z here? Jesus takes the risk. He goes for it. He's talking with her. It begins. They just start talking about water. And then he starts to just prod a little bit deeper and he gets to her spiritual thirst. 
And the gist of the conversation, the other cool thing about this story, it's risky. It's a risky conversation. It's also very simple. And what's simple about it is this woman basically says she's thirsty and Jesus says, I know how to meet your thirst. I know where you can get living water. That song we sing in our church. The woman believes from this simple conversation. Jesus just says, I know where to take you to the true well. She's like, I want to go to that well. Please give us this water. Um, it's risky. Jesus crosses some cultural boundaries and he, he goes for it in this conversation. And then she ends up going back to her town and she does the same thing. And so all, all of a sudden, this whole Samaritan village is hearing the gospel but it's because Jesus had a simple, risky conversation with this one woman first. So what starts small and simple gets a lot bigger. So the big idea for this morning is this. It's harvest time, brothers and sisters. Christ Church, we cannot wait four months. Yeah. I'm, I have had to repent that I've even wanted to do that as a pastor. Let's just wait. Let's not care about this. It'll be so much better when we all meet again and it's going to be this huge harvest. I've been convicted of that. That's foolish. Now is harvest time. People are suffering now. That's the big idea. The application from this story at the woman on the well is this. I have a risky, simple conversation. Just do what Jesus did. Jesus did some amazing things, but I find it interesting that when he says this thing about the harvest, comes after he just found a woman who was thirsty and he said, I have living water. And she says, yes, it was that simple. If you know Jesus, you know he slakes thirst. He gives hope. He heals. And if you meet someone who is thirsty or afraid or hopeless, just tell them you know where to find hope. It's that simple. Um, as I was writing this sermon, I was uh, very convicted, and I, I don't want to preach anything that I'm not willing to obey or act out myself. And so I thought, well, I need to have a simple, risky conversation. So I just put a block here in my sermon prep and I said, Lord, that was my prayer this week. Okay, give one to me. If, it, if this is what I feel like the Bible is calling us to do, then you'll provide that for me. So I just prayed for it. And it's coronavirus, so I don't see tons of people. Um, and it went on and on and on until it got to, I was finishing up my sermon prep on Saturday morning and I didn't have a simple risky conversation and I was really sad. And I just thought, well, I'll just tell a different story from another time or whatever. And uh, I started to believe all the other temptations. It's really fascinating. I was like, I guess it is just not the right <laughs> permission. Uh, I guess it is just too, it's just bad circumstances. People don't want to hear. People are too concerned with other things. And, uh, and I was like, well, that's a fail. That's a bummer. Um, I guess like the gospel isn't that practical or true. So I went home and uh, got my boys and I went for a run where they were on their bikes and I was pushing them in a stroller and everything. And in the middle of my run, uh, one of my boys were passing this park. He says, I want to stop here. So we stopped at this park and we went to the park and I'm sitting there like sweaty and, you know, just watching my kids like swing or whatever. And there's one other guy and one other kid there. And all of a sudden he starts talking to me and we start talking about like home prices and random stuff you talk about on the park in Madison, like, yeah, real estate, like coronavirus, you know? And then all of a sudden it was just like, ding, 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 in my heart. And he started talking more and more and more. And then I heard he mentioned that he's out of town, but he comes into Madison frequently for his wife's chemotherapy. And that was all it took was just me stopping and saying, tell me more about that. That sounds really hard. And then it just gushed. 
um, and hearing what this man is going through with his family and how they're lost and hungry and hurting. This guy's pulling insane days with their son and his wife has uh, very dangerous cancer. And I, it was so clear. The Lord is like, this is it. You, you know how to help this man. So first of all, I thought, well, we can help you. Uh, my family can. Maybe our church can. How can we serve your family while you're here for your chemo visits? We connected information and we're going to give them meals and everything else. But then I also got to say, not only do we care about your situation and your wife, and we're going to pray for you, but Jesus does. God does. And we got to talk about it. And he and I are going to continue to be in relationship and have a conversation. And I was just shocked by how simple that was. I have been at playgrounds. If you have kids, you know, all the time. I, at the same time, rejoiced at the goodness of God and repented of my lack of zeal. People need Jesus. Do you actually believe that Jesus is the hope of the world? Why would you not share that with somebody? You don't think people are hungry for something substantial and eternal and good right now? People are thirsty, brothers and sisters. Now is the time. It's harvest time. Um, I, I, I want us to pray for big things as a church, really big things. I want to baptize tons of people because God is so good and he's drawing all men and women unto himself. But I also want to just say, keep it simple. Have a risky, simple conversation. If I met somebody on a run, you can meet somebody too. You're a neighbor, a coworker, whoever it is. It's harvest time. The problem is not the harvest. The problem is laborers. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord to send out laborers into the harvest.